Well, good, good evening and uh, welcome. Welcome to our Bible study. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight or for tuning in. And I uh, do trust the Lord. I will bless you for prioritizing the teaching of His Word. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Ruth. And uh, we find ourselves in the second chapter. And uh, so far we've seen the providence of God and we've seen the grace of God as Ruth gleans in the fields of Boaz. But as all of this is unfolding, okay, Ruth is at work in the fields, Naomi is actually in the dark. Okay? She has no idea about Ruth's day. Okay? How, how is it unfolding? And no doubt she would have been quite anxious. Uh, the text is silent, but it doesn't take much imagination. Okay? Try and put yourself in Naomi's position. And what would have been running through your mind? Okay? What field? would Ruth end up in? Would there be anyone who would accept her? Would she be mistreated? Remembering she's a Moabite and Moabites were not the favorite people for Jewish folk. And she was a vulnerable lady. Okay, that made her a target. So no doubt the day went quite slow for Naomi. You know, those days when it feels like the clock stops are very frustrating. And she, she couldn't just send a text or a snap or a Facebook messenger message and Ruth would quickly reply. Okay, she was in the dark. She had absolutely no idea about what was unfolding. And that's until Ruth arrives home and gives Naomi a rundown of the events of the day. And it's this that's recorded in the closing section of Ruth chapter 2. And this is another dialogue in this closing section. And as we've seen, this is quite common in the book of Ruth. The story is often told through dialogue. And this particular conversation is crucial. It's vital in setting the direction for what's to come, both immediately and also well into the future. And it also helps to rejuvenate the downhearted and discouraged. So let's read this uh, crucial conversation. Ruth chapter 2, I'd like to read from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter. So Ruth chapter 2, reading from verse 17, the word of God says, So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabites said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Amen. Now let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for this night you've given to us. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity that we just had to spend 
uh, some time together in prayer. And uh, we look forward to seeing how you answer our prayers according to your will. Father, thank you now that we can spend some time studying your word. Uh, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. I do pray that uh, he would illuminate this portion of scripture for us. Uh, help us to be still and help us to, to listen uh, to that which you have to teach us tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I was a child, uh, my sister and I, I used to love it when our grandparents came to our home. And when we knew they were coming, we could actually see the highway from our home. Uh, so we would wait at the window in anticipation, waiting to see Ma and Pa's car. Uh, my grandparents often ran late, so that tested our patience. But when we saw their car, okay, we, with bursting with excitement, we would run downstairs knowing that they would be there at any moment. And this is how I envision Naomi in the text. She, she must have been waiting for Ruth in anxious anticipation, earnestly desiring her return. Okay, wondering in her mind, how was her day going? Would she bring any food home? Remembering they're in quite a precarious position. Okay, was she well treated or was she mistreated? Varying scenarios must have played out in her mind. And from what we read about Naomi in chapter 1, it doesn't seem to be an unreasonable inference that she probably had more negative thoughts than positive. Okay, that, that's where she was at. She was in the grips of bitterness. But she must have been filled with much nervous and anxious energy as she awaited the return of Ruth. Now, as Naomi anxiously waited, we read in verse 17 about Ruth's day. And although it isn't clear to us, uh, because we don't understand too much about ancient farming practices, and we don't measure things in an ephah, okay, the sense in verse 17 is that Ruth had an incredibly productive day. In fact, the idea conveyed is that this was astonishing. This was not just a typical day for a gleaner. Okay, this was unheard of. No gleaner ever took home this amount of grain, not even the most skillful. Yeah, certainly not a foreign woman who was perhaps doing this for the first time. So we're meant to be struck by the amount. It'll be a bit like you and I returning home with $5,000 for a day's work for merely laboring. Okay, I've labored. You don't get that kind of money. Okay, that's completely unheard of. And we're meant to get the sense that other things are at play behind the scenes. Now, this doesn't diminish Ruth's work ethic. She put in a lot of effort. There was much Moabite sweat on the Jewish fields. But we're meant to sense providence in the shadows. It's evident that she was highly favored. But she certainly did work hard. And she worked long. We're told in verse 17, she labored into the evening. So there's no two o'clock knockoff for Ruth. Okay, so in her situation, she made the most of the favorable situation. Okay, she worked hard, even though it was evident grace was upon her. And after she gleaned, we're told that she beat out the grain. Okay, this refers to the threshing process, getting the grain out of the head of the plant. Okay, and once that was complete, she headed home. Now, the exact amount of barley that she had is debated. Okay, scholars range between about 15 to 30 kilos. But with this on her shoulders, she heads home to Naomi. 
And try and imagine the look on Naomi's face. Okay, first of all, relief must have swept through her entire being. Ruth was home and she was unharmed. But her jaw must have dropped when she saw how much grain she had. She's like, whoa, look how much she's got. And then her jaw must have dropped even further when Ruth gave her the leftovers from her lovely lunch with Boaz. Okay, and this is what we see in verse uh, verse 18 when it says, And she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. Okay, brought her the leftovers from lunch. Now instantly, Naomi knew there had to be a story behind this. And she wanted to hear everything. She wanted to know every little detail. And these two ladies begin to engage in what is a crucial conversation. And I want to consider this crucial conversation under three headings. Naomi's rejoicing, Naomi's revelation, and Naomi's recommendation. So firstly, Naomi's rejoicing. Okay, verse 19 says, And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi knew as soon as she saw Ruth that someone had treated her well. Someone had gone over and beyond. Someone had been gracious and kind to her. This was not merely a normal day gleaning. And this is evident in her questioning of Ruth. Okay, she asks, where did you glean today? In whose fields were you in? And perhaps internally she was thinking, I hope she says Boaz. I hope she says Boaz. And Naomi pronounces a blessing on whoever it was that had taken Ruth under her wing and had treated her so kindly. And although tone is okay, not possible to glean from the text, it seems likely that, that there is a ray of hope in the life of Naomi. Okay, that there is some joyful sunlight bursting through the dark and bitter clouds that had covered her life. And this pronounced blessing in verse 19, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee, it's confirmation that Ruth had been favored. And Naomi wanted the Lord to bless the one who had been so kind and gracious to Ruth, okay, to the one who had paid attention to her, remembering that she's a Moabite. And if anyone was going to be ignored, if anyone was going to be mistreated, it was her. And hence, Naomi is overjoyed. Not only was Ruth not ignored, but she was treated favorably. It's evident from what she brought home that someone had really looked after her. And Naomi was very interested to know who it was. Ruth, tell me more. I want to know everything. Hey, don't leave out any detail. And Ruth obliged. Okay, that's the sense of the next phrase in verse 19. Notice it says, and she showed her mother-in-law. This word showed means to declare or to make known or to report. So, so there was considerable conversation between these two ladies. Ruth described the day in great detail. And she explained the, the, the grace and the kindness that had been lavished upon her. No doubt she spent much time talking about Boaz, describing what, what he was like and describing his character. 
And I don't know the manner of this conversation. Okay, was it merely factual? Okay, Ruth reporting what happened. Was Ruth a little smitten, perhaps? Was Naomi teasing her like, like we would? You know, Ruth, he sounds like a real catch, sounds like a good guy. You know, maybe that's the sense. Um, however women talk about these things. I'm not sure, I'm not a woman. Okay, but there was much said about the day. And what the writer is trying to do here in this verse is actually trying to build suspense. Because Ruth is describing this man. He's describing the favor that had been lavished upon her. And she paints an impressive picture. Okay, it's almost a perfect man. But she doesn't give a name. She doesn't give the name until the end. Okay, that's the final word of the verse. And it's like Naomi is sitting on her seat. Who is this guy? Tell me his name. Do I know him? I know who I hope it is. And then finally, it's revealed. His name is Boaz. And as the name came out of the lips of Ruth, Naomi is evidently overcome with joy. And perhaps Ruth picks up on this and, and asks the question, do you know him? And Naomi, probably for the first time in a long time, she's actually happy. A smile had burst out of her bitter face. And she pronounces this exclamation of praise. And this is the second blessing pronounced. Things were really changing. Remember how bitter she was in chapter 1. Okay, so now we, ha we have this who was a cranky old lady. Okay, someone who was infused with bitterness. She's now starting to be joyful. Okay, from bitterness to blessedness, from resentment to rejoicing. What a change. And no doubt that must have struck Ruth, because it seems unlikely that she had seen this side of Naomi very often, if at all. And in verse 20, Naomi joyously pronounces this benediction. She says, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now, this benediction is actually slightly ambiguous. Uh, is the focus on the Lord or is the focus on Boaz? Okay. Who is it that had shown the kindness? Now, I tend to think that the ambiguity is actually deliberate in order to stress that both Boaz and the Lord had shown this kindness. In fact, it's the Lord showing kindness through Boaz. And here Naomi okay, praises the Lord for the kindness that has been bestowed. Okay, and she uses this phrase, slightly peculiar, to both the living and the dead. Okay, the living seems to be referring to Naomi and Ruth, whereas the dead likely speaks of Elimelech and the two sons. And it's probably likely that, that this is a Hebrew language device. It's called a merism. And this refers to the family as a whole. Okay, so to the whole family. And what we learn is that Naomi saw Ruth's coming upon the field of Boaz as a demonstration of the Lord's grace and favor. She saw this as providence, which is what I argued for a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so Boaz was the providential agent who discharged the Lord's kindness. And this word kindness that's used here, it's the Hebrew word keshed. Uh, it's a theological term. It's a covenantal term. And it's one of those words that we can't describe or define with just one English word. You know those terms that are just so amazing you cannot define with one word. 
So with this word, if we picture a cluster of grapes, and it includes love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, and faithfulness. Okay, that's like all the little grapes, and that makes up that one cluster. And that begins to encapsulate what's included in this term. So here's Naomi. She, she is rejoicing in the Lord. Yeah, and remember, that this is a massive turnaround. We, we almost think, is this the same lady? Okay, she, she's gone from this consuming bitterness. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And now she's overflowing with joy. She's gone from cloudy and stormy to glorious sunshine. It's, it's a drastic change. And this was produced by grasping the grace and kindness of God at work in her life. When she saw that, it changed everything. But the question is this. Is it just the food that Ruth brought home that brought upon this unexpected reaction? Or was there more to it? Okay, is, is Naomi thrilled because now there's some food in the pantry? Or is there something else at play? Well, this leads into our second point, which I've entitled Naomi's Revelation. Okay, verse 20 and part B. It says, And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Okay, no doubt Naomi was very happy about all the grain that Ruth had brought her. And she enjoyed the leftovers from the lunch with Boaz. Okay, starvation had been averted. That's cause for joy. It's a bullet you want to dodge. Starvation's horrible. But this is the secondary cause of her joyous outburst. Because she had a bigger picture in mind. Okay, notice that she says, Boaz is our next kinsman. Now, whether this meant much to Ruth or not, we can't be sure. But what this does tell us is that Naomi was very familiar with the law of God. And this is what she's referencing when she refers to Boaz as a kinsman. And this is the chief cause of Naomi's delight. And this is a key for the unfolding narrative. The fact that Boaz was a near kinsman. Now we're not told what the relationship was. But it was close enough to give Naomi hope. But the question is, what hope did the fact that Boaz was a relative give Naomi? Okay, it was to do with the concept of this kinsman, but, but what's a kinsman? Well, one author gives this definition. He says, and this is in your notes, a relative who is responsible for the economic well-being of a relative, and he comes into play especially when the relative is in distress and cannot get himself, herself out of the crisis. Okay? And this was built into the law of God. And for Naomi, this was a twofold hope based on the provision of God's law. And there are two main texts, Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25. And when it came to Boaz, Naomi had mingled two different laws together. She had marriage and property on her mind. And she wanted Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer and fulfill the law in respect to marriage, so seed and property. And it was this potential that was the cause of her delight. Now let's think about the kinsman redeemer just a little more deeply. 
Now, when we consider the role of the kinsman redeemer, okay, one author offered this explanation. He says the kinsman redeemer has five responsibilities according to the law of God. And again, this is in your notes. Number one, to ensure that the hereditary property of the clan never passes out of the clan. Leviticus 25, 25 to 30. Number two, to maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying back those who have sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. Leviticus 25, 47 to 55. Number three, to track down and execute murderers of near relatives. Numbers 35, 12 and verses 19 to 27. Number four, to receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. Numbers 5, 8. And number five, to ensure that justice is served in a lawsuit involving a relative. Job 19, 25, Psalm 119, 154, and Jeremiah 50, verse 34. And Leviticus 25, okay, this is a key text. And verse 25 says this. If thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. So there's the property aspect of the kinsman redeemer. And this is certainly at play in the book of Ruth. But notice in the five responsibilities, there's no mention of marriage. But this is covered in what is called a Levite marriage. And this is spelled out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I'd like you to turn there because this is a crucial text for the narrative of Ruth. Okay, if you write in your Bible, write somewhere Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, because this explains or makes sense of what happens in the book of Ruth. So Deuteronomy 25, and let's read from verse 5. Word of God says, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which he beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. So if here, if, if one died and had no children, a close relative would marry the widow and have children with her. And this was to continue the family line, to perpetuate the seed. And it brought great shame upon an individual if this duty was ignored. Can okay, we read here of the loosing of a shoe and being spat in the face? Okay, that was a sign of absolute disgrace. So the Lord was very serious about this. Okay, this duty was to be honored. And it's this that Naomi has in mind. Boaz is a relative. So he's qualified to be the kinsman redeemer. He can continue the family line. 
Okay, remember her sons had passed. Okay, and he can buy back the family property. It's this that's all running through Naomi's mind. And she's rejoicing that the Lord brought Ruth into this field. Okay, it could have been any other field, and yet she lands in the field of Boaz, someone who happens to be a relative, someone who happens to be eligible to be the kinsman redeemer. Okay, she, she can see the Lord's hand, and finally there seemed to be some hope. Okay, so this is what's at play. And one author offered this explanation of the significance of this phrase in verse 20 that we've been unpacking. Okay, the, the phrase being the man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Okay, the author said the significance of this verse must be underscored. First, in saying that Boaz was our kinsman redeemer, Naomi cleared away ambiguity about Ruth's social status. In her view, Ruth was definitely a family member entitled to the benefits of a kinsman. Second, Naomi introduced the prospect of help from Boaz, perhaps even of marriage for Ruth a key item which anticipates the scheme of chapter 3. And then third, the statements elevated the role of Boaz and thereby opened up new narrative possibilities. He was no longer simply a prominent, good-hearted Israelite, rather he was a near relative with duties toward the women. Okay, and this revelation from Naomi, the fact that Boaz is a kinsman, this sets the direction for the rest of the story. And this is why this is such a crucial conversation. And in light of Boaz qualifying to be a kinsman, Naomi knew what was vital that Ruth continue to glean in his fields. And this comes out in our next point, which I've entitled Naomi's Recommendation. And we see this in the remaining verses, reading from verse 21. And Ruth the Moabites said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men, until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, for they meet thee not in any other field. Verse 23. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz, to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. You know, what we have in these closing verses is really Naomi discipling Ruth. The older lady helping the younger lady. Okay, this is Titus chapter 2 in action. And it commences with Ruth speaking. And this, in no doubt, okay, her reply after hearing that Boaz is a kinsman. Okay, so she hears this, Boaz is a kinsman. She sees Ruth's delight. And hence she informs her mother-in-law that Boaz has actually extended the invite until the end of harvest. Okay, Naomi, I've, I've got some news. I can actually go back here. Okay, he's, he's given me an open invitation. And no doubt this was wonderful for Naomi to hear. Now it's interesting that Ruth says in verse 21 that Boaz had told her to stay with the young men. Whereas Naomi exhorts her in verse 22 to remain with the maidens, so, so the women. Uh, what are we to make of this? Well, some speculate that Ruth is being tempted by the young men. Uh, it's important that we believe that no one is untemptable in any area. I think as soon as we think we're invincible to temptation, okay, look out, we're incredibly vulnerable. But I think that's harsh, and I don't think the text gives any kind of indication that Ruth is tempted to pursue these 
other men. I think that's reading something into the text that's not there. Furthermore, it's worth noting that the maidens actually followed the young men in the harvesting process. Okay, the young men would go, the, the young women would follow in behind. Okay, so they were close. But perhaps Naomi wants Ruth to be careful that other men don't get interested in her. Okay, if you're out in the harvest, you've got all these young men, you see this young lady, if she's good looking, working hard, impeccable character, okay, she's going to be quite attractive. So Naomi wants to ensure that there's nothing that would jeopardize the potential of Boaz being the kinsman. Okay, so that could be one element. But I, I also want you to notice the final phrase of verse 22. It says that they meet the not. And this particular phraseology speaks of causing harm. Okay, so Naomi wanted to make sure Ruth wasn't harmed. And th this could refer to extreme harm, such as murder or rape. But it seems more likely that this is speaking of more minor abuse. But she's seeking to protect Ruth. So she encourages her daughter-in-law to remain in the fields of Boaz. Okay, don't go anywhere else. There you'll be safe. Stick close to the maidens. This is the wise counsel given to Ruth. And in verse 23, we see her response. And this uh, says much about the character of Ruth. It reveals at least three things. Okay, in verse 23, we read, So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and a wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. First thing this reveals about Ruth is she listened to wise counsel. Okay, this is seen in the first phrase. She continued in the fields of Boaz. She stuck close to the maidens. Okay, she didn't ignore, she didn't reject the counsel given to her by her mother-in-law. Okay, and you and I too, we would do well to hearken to the wise counsel that we receive. Second thing we learn about Ruth is that she continued to work hard. Okay, although this is not the emphasis of the narrative, okay, God's grace, God's providence is the focus, Ruth still worked hard. Okay, we read here that she gleaned through both the barley and the wheat harvest. This is for a two-month period, okay, seven to eight weeks. So she woke up every day, went to the fields of Boaz, and she labored. Okay, she would have done that six days a week. Okay, that's very admirable. She didn't get lazy despite the favor bestowed on her. Okay, God's grace, God's providence is never an excuse for laziness. And then the third thing that we learn about Ruth that's quite admirable is that she was a lady of her word. Verse 23 concludes, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Okay, so she continued to be with and she continued to care for Naomi. She didn't ignore her. She didn't neglect her. But she honored her famous declaration from the previous chapter. Okay, Naomi, I'll go with you. Your gods will be my gods. I will stay with you. Okay, this was not just some empty platitude, but she lives it out. So Ruth, she's certainly a lady of godly character. But what I found quite interesting is that for two months, there's no mention of Boaz. There's silence from the narrator. We have this joyous scene on the first day in the fields. Okay, Ruth and Boaz meet and we're anticipating that Boaz would sweep Ruth off her feet and yet nothing's mentioned. And the chapter concludes by showing us that what happened 
is that they just settled into a regular routine. Day in, day out, go to the field, work, come home. But there's no mention of a kinsman redeemer. And this is designed to leave us in suspense. What will happen? Will Boaz be the kinsman redeemer? Just because he can be doesn't mean to say he will. What will happen? And you'll need to come back next week to find out what happens. That's the best that I can build suspense. You know, for tonight, from this crucial conversation, I want to draw out three lessons. Number one, God is faithful even when we are not. This is a wonderful comfort that God's faithfulness and God's goodness to us, it's not earned or merited. Okay, let that sink in. It's not earned, it's not merited. We don't have to be faithful to him for a certain period of time before he ever extends faithfulness to us. And isn't that great news? It's not like we have to reach some certain level before God is ever good to us. Because you and I, we fail to be faithful to him constantly. I would argue daily. And yet he is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. Naomi and her family, they, they had been very unfaithful. They left the promised land. They were gone for over 10 years. Okay? This signified deserting the Lord. Not Naomi had drifted away, and yet the Lord remained faithful to her. That the Lord took her out of this bitterness and brought her into blessedness. This was undeserved. Okay? That, that's all of grace, and that's the point. God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. And my friend, that magnifies the greatness of our God. That our God is still dependable, he's reliable, he's trustworthy, even when we are not. And our God will keep his promises even though we are so often unfaithful. And that's good news. Now sure, this doesn't excuse unfaithfulness. There will be consequences for unfaithfulness. But it does exemplify the wonder, greatness, and glory of our God. The fact that he is completely faithful. He is so good to us even when we are not to him. So you know, praise the Lord that we don't have to earn his faithfulness. It's a guarantee. Why? Because God is faithful. That's who he is and that cannot change. Lesson number two, our concept of God's goodness is often skewed like Naomi. Okay, in the text, there's what I identified as a stunning turnaround. So Naomi goes from bitterness to blessedness. And this is wonderful to behold, to, to, to see this great change. But she actually illustrates something that I believe is a massive susceptibility for each and every one of us. She allowed her circumstances to determine what she thought about God. She had circumstantial theology. I don't know if that's a thing. I've made it up. Hopefully, hopefully I can get the credit for it. 
circumstantial theology. Don't Google it. 20 other people have probably written it. Circumstantial theology. What I mean by this is she was bitter with God when things were going bad, but rejoiced when things were going well. And here's the point that I want to bring out. God is good. God is faithful. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving no matter what unfolds in your life. God's goodness, his faithfulness, his love, it's not dependent on favorable circumstances in your life. So understand that God's faithfulness, love, and goodness, it's not measured by our perception as to whether things are working out in a way that we perceive favorable. Okay, we can think, hey, things are working out well in my life. This is how I want them to happen. So God must be good. And then when things don't go to plan, we think, well, hey, God, God mustn't be good. That's poor theology because God is faithful. God is good. God is loving. Even when things don't work out the way that we want them to. Why? Because that is who God is. Understand God is faithful. God is good. God is loving. God is gracious. That's his character. And that's unchanging because God is immutable. Yeah, and that needs to be our settled conviction. Because otherwise, when our lives get turned upside down and inside out, when they get smashed into a million pieces, when we suffer, okay, we will think that God is not good, that he's not loving, and that he's not faithful because we measure who God is by our situation, by our circumstances. But that's the wrong way to do theology. Circumstantial theology is very dangerous. Now, I do want to be sympathetic because I know some people suffer in excruciating ways. But that does not mean that God ceases to be good, faithful, gracious, and loving. Why? Because that is his character. That's what the Bible reveals God to be like. And that cannot change and it does not change even when things don't work out that's lesson two and lesson three jesus is our kinsman redeemer okay the kinsman redeemer which we have seen was built into god's law is fulfilled by jesus christ and we will come back to this point again and again, probably in every sermon for the rest of this book, because this is what it's about. Boaz is presented as a potential kinsman redeemer. Why? Because he's related to the family. This is what qualified him. You had to be related. And how amazing to ponder that Jesus Christ, who is God, okay, the second member of the Trinity, he took upon himself human flesh in order to become our kinsman redeemer. This made him like us. This qualified him to be our redeemer. Jesus needed to be like us in order to redeem us. And Jesus fulfills the kinsman redeemer in many ways. And 
I'm not going to reveal them all tonight. We're going to keep coming back to this. Okay, but just this one. Okay, just one way he fulfills this tonight. Jesus took upon himself humanity. He became man exactly like us, except without sin, so that he would qualify to be our kinsman redeemer. He, he related to us in this way. My friend, we, we hear about this all the time, but don't lose sight of how wonderful it is that God became man. That stunning condescension. And why did he do that? In order to redeem you. In order to redeem me. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the kinsman redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, and praise you for, for your word. And I uh, thank you for what it reveals uh, about yourself. And um, Lord, we, we see your providence uh, all over uh, you know, this book. And, and that's a great comfort. And we, we do thank you that uh, your, your character uh, is unchanging. Uh, but Lord, we thank you most of all for our, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we, we stand in awe, we, we stand amazed that he would take upon himself humanity in, in order to be like us so that we could be redeemed. Lord, that's the good news of the gospel. And I do pray that that would be in, encouraging us and it would be growing uh, our love for our Lord. Father, as we go our separate ways, as we head for our homes, please keep us safe as we travel. Until we meet again, we ask these things in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake.